ICRA with Robots, the podcast for news and views on robotics. Hi and welcome to the latest episode of the Robots Podcast. I am Jana and today we are showcasing some of the companies from the International Conference on Robotics and Automation in Seattle. Our interviewer Audro spoke to representatives from some of the big and exciting names in robotics to check out their latest innovations. Among them were Ambot, Fetch and Kinova. So let's dive right in and hear what they had to say. Hi, can you introduce yourself? My name is Jens Hurley. I'm a senior roboticist at Ambot. Can you tell me what you have set up at this booth? Uh, Our booth today here is uh, based on research mobility platforms. Um, We're doing a lot of ground robotics um, with a lot of autonomous function built into them. Mm -hmm. And so can this one right here on our side, can you describe it a bit and then talk about its applications? Absolutely. Um, this guy is our ruggedized, outdoor, high-speed, high-mobility platform. Um, it weighs about 525 pounds. It can carry about 550 pounds, so it's got a one-to-one payload ratio. Um, it's got four-wheel steer, independent, um, four-wheel sus- suspension, and four-wheel drive, so it's really highly manipulative, um, which makes it great for uh, research applications as well as um, it served in the military for a light-in-the-load application and, and medical evac. Um, it also has high-powered uh, lithium-ion batteries that are hot swappable. Mm. Um, has about a eight to ten run uh, hour runtime over uh, the typical terrain. So, um, how large is it, and how tall? Uh, overall, I believe it's about fifty-two inches long, about forty-two inches wide, um, and its ground clearance is about eight inches. The whole vehicle itself is about nineteen inches mm-hmm. from so, the ground. And it's a large remote-operated vehicle. Uh, it can be. This this one particular one is set up for a remote, a man in the loop. Um, we also do offer systems that offer a lot more autonomous functionality, um, mm-hmm. like follow, soldier following or vision-based systems. I see. And so it has these large carbon fiber capsules on its side. What it do those do? do? Uh, those are actually our battery packs. Um, they are actually quickly removable. Um, yeah. Why electric? Oh, silent operation, clean, um, quiet. Um, it's just overall a very nice function to have. Um, a lot of the applications that's been used for in military require the silent functionality. They don't really want a, a motored system. Um, so this is a, a great solution for that. So how long do the batteries last? How far can you go on them? Under, under, under typical train, typical conditions, your environment, about 8 to 10 hours. Wow. Yep. And how far? How far? I mean, that depends on your speed and you know, location. But So I mean, what's the max distance it could travel? I mean, that's you have an a, idea? That's a, no, I, I couldn't tell you the max, max distance. I mean, runtime dependent, about Ballpark? 7 miles per hour for 10 hours, you know, so, I mean, continuous movement. 70 miles. Okay. And it, this, so this vehicle looks like it has a very heavy suspension system. Can you it talk does. a bit about that? Absolutely. Um, it was developed to carry a high, high payload, heavy weight, um, under almost any condition. So um, it's got six, win- six inches of independent suspension at each corner, uh, which make it, you know, its environmental um, contact with the ground is just, it's just it's great. You know, it's very rugged, very durable. durable. 
Mm -hmm. So how fast does it go? Uh, this particular model goes has a top speed of about 14 miles per hour. Uh, a couple of our models do go up to about 30. And it's but it's very high torque and high power. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, very high powered, high torque, um, which is required for you know its heavy payload. And at those speeds, why is about a good suspension valuable? Oh. Um, it's actually key. So whenever you get a payload on top of this thing, uh, you'll see some of the, the non-suspension vehicles. You know, when they, the payload, if it's too high, uh, high center of gravity, um, it's just not a good thing to have it at high speeds. So we keep the suspension. The active suspension keeps the payload low, uh, very stable. Um, yeah, and it's physics. Yes. So governments are the primary ones that are interested in this, or are there other applications? This particular robot here was developed for a military function, um, basically of a soldier lighten the load mule system. Um, right now we're actually moving more into research facilities, so the European Space Agency is using it uh, for teleop operations, as well as uh, universities like Johns Hopkins and Applied Physics Laboratory. What do you mean teleop? Uh, basically, for the ESA. Is that So basically they're, what they're doing is a man in the loop. So they'll... He'd basically be operating this from miles away uh, to perform some sort of... I see. Okay, so that's what you mean by teleop. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So tele teleop and research applications. What about, like, agriculture? Uh, it's something we're looking into. There's actually been a lot of interest here for agricultural purposes. Um, right now, we currently don't do much with that, um, but it's definitely a field that we're looking at getting in, involved with. I see. And why... So this vehicle has buttons on the front. What's the purpose of the buttons? Um... It's pretty standard that every robot comes with an emergency shutoff, um, which is what you see here, the red buttons. Um, the, the rest of these are just there for easy setup and easy control when you get it out of the package. A lot of the customers, when they, they get it up and going, they actually remove the onboard control system because they're going to be controlling it from a, a distance. Mm -hmm. Now, um, so this vehicle, I don't really see how, it, how you put a payload on it. Uh, it's, to describe it a little bit further, the wheels are a little bit taller than the body, Mm -hmm. And uh, the battery packs are a little higher than the body as well. Mm -hmm. Do you mount some sort of platform on it, and then you use the payload that way, or you carry the payload that way? D depending on application, or if it, towing, if it, if it, yeah, and towing. If it, depending on application, uh, a lot of payloads that it's being used for now, uh, manipulative arms and torsos, uh, they do fit on the payload, the current payload space. Um, if it is something larger, like a pallet size, and the payload space is about a body width. Uh, and the length of the robot, which exactly, 52 yeah, about, inches, about 52 inches long and about 14 inches wide. Yep. So if it, if there is a bigger power uh, pallet size payload that's that's required, uh, there's hard mounting points located at each corner of the vehicle that we mount racks on to, to elevate it up and off. Mm -hmm. What about uh, repair in the field? How so for military applications? If mm -hmm. one of these breaks down, how does it? How do you proceed? Uh, depending on exactly what you know, what is broken down, um, it's a very simple platform. Uh, everything is open architecture, both software and you know the internals. So mm -hmm. it's easy to get into, easy to repair. Um, it's a very straightforward, simple machine. Do you have? Is there a standards uh, in creating this? Uh, do you use like one single size screw for accessing almost everything, or is there one tool to take apart most of it? Is there any modularity built in so that you can quickly replace components? Make, uh, definitely. Most of the stuff is done in uh, two metric sizes, basically M6 and M5s. So um, our, our, our U.S. models do um, standard quarter 20. So, I mean, it's all pretty much built together with the same hardware. Thank you. No problem. Hi, can you introduce yourself? Uh, yes, I'm uh, Michael Ferguson. I'm the Chief Technology Officer of Fetch Robotics. Can you tell me about what you have set up at your booth? 
Uh, so this week we are showing off uh, our new robot platform, Fetch. Uh, we're both showcasing our uh, release videos that we put out about a month ago and actually letting people get up close and sort of see the robot in person. Uh, in particular, the research edition of Fetch uh, is, is what most people here at this show are interested in. Can you tell me a bit about the robot and describe it? Sure. Uh, so Fetch is a mobile manipulation platform. So it has a mobile base that can drive around. Uh, it has a laser, uh, scanning laser in the base uh, to give it a view of the world and keep it localized. It has a torso that can uh, raise up and down. And attached to that, you have a 7 degree of freedom arm. Uh, the gripper is a modularity point. Uh, currently, we have a sort of just a simple two-finger pincher on here. What do you mean modularity point? You can swap uh, it? You can swap it out, yeah. So, uh, you know, we have a standard specification on this. It's actually an ISO standard mount point, uh, which, mean, and, and it's, uh, which means that... International num- Standards Organization? Yes. Okay. Acronyms. Um, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, so it's a standard mount point. There's a number of uh, vendors here at the show with really cool grippers that have, you know, sensors and all sorts of other stuff in them. Um, and many of those will fit on our robot. Um, and then lastly, the, the robot has a pan and tilt head uh, so that you can look in different directions. And that is uh, carrying a, a, an RGBD sensor, so color and depth data uh, in 3D. So you can sort of see the whole world around you. It's a Microsoft Connect. Uh, it's a or prime very sense similar? sensor. Yeah. Okay. Similar. So the robot has a, small, a wider base, and that's how it moves around. And then it has the center part, which has the robotic arm. And then above that is the vision, uh, the depth sensor. And at the very base is the, it's, what is it? It's the sensor at the bottom, you said? Uh, It's a a scanning laser range finder. Uh, Laser uh, range finder? Is it only on a plane? It is on a plane, yep. I see. Uh, And that's actually uh, manufactured by SICK. By SICK. Now, why is the arm crushing a baby duck? I have no idea. Um, there's some sort of duck theme for Ikra, and uh, people have been using this to squeeze the duck and squeak the duck. Um, I have no idea why, though. So for our, for our listeners, uh, to describe the scene, it is the fetch robot holding its arm victoriously, clenching a baby duck, and it's squeezed. <laughs> so why seven degrees of freedom? Uh, so 7 Degrees of Freedom gives you uh, really good dexterous manipulation. So, uh, you know, if you're just picking things up on a tabletop, uh, you probably don't need, a, you know, a really dexterous arm. But if you want to reach into things, uh, you know, if you've got, you know, a complex, you know, a cluttered environment, uh, you really want the, the extra Degrees of Freedom there. Mm-hmm. I see. And so why... So it only has one arm, and the arm is at the center of the robot. Why this configuration? This is so you can reach things? Yeah, uh, it's, it's actually, there's two aspects there. One is that, you know, you, you, you know two arms, well, so uh, let me hit on one arm first, is that, um, you know, two arms would make this robot significantly larger, heavier, and bulkier, right? Um, you want to navigate around human environments, you know, we have skinny doors and whatnot, things like that. Um, you really want to sort of get a compact robot. Um, so, so two arms would be very difficult to do with that. Uh, the other thing is that, very few applications really require two arms. Um, and in many cases, you know, if you did need a second arm, you just have a second robot come up and, and help it out, right? Uh, like, you know, they can coordinate with each other. Um, 
as uh, you know, as far as the center, really that's for stability. Um, when the robot arm gets you know, tucked in, uh, there's a very nice little tuck configuration here that uh, is extremely stable. Uh, you know, as the robot's driving around. Um, so that you can sort of move quickly around the environment and not have to worry about, you know, your robot falling over. Will this be used for, like, uh, warehouse solutions to pick up products and put them into boxes to be shipped off somewhere? Is yeah. that what this has been designed for? Yeah. Uh, so so we're really designing to go into the logistics space, uh, you know, warehouse automation, pick and pack, those sort of things for, you know, items. Um you can actually see those videos on our website uh, and sort of see the robots doing those sort of tasks. Mm -hmm. And so if I'm not mistaken, the whole robot can rise up. Um, its, its spine kind of grows yes. longer, yep. and that allows it to reach higher? Yes. So the robot right now is how tall? Uh, it's a little over a meter tall in its lowest configuration. Okay, and how tall can it be? Uh, it gets up to about one... Point seven meters or so. Uh, the, the exact specs are actually on our website uh, yes. for, no, for just listeners. To, just to get an idea. Yep. yep. Um, basically, you can actually get to, uh, you know, when you extend the arm all the way up, uh, you still have some dexterous manipulability at about six feet height. Mm -hmm. And then you also mentioned that this could be a research platform. Can you tell me a bit about yeah. that? Yeah, so, uh, you know, obviously we've developed a really cool robot platform here. Um, you know, we need a stable robot platform. We're built on the robot operating system, or ROS. Uh, and so we are now making available our research edition, uh, which has, you know, the robot hardware, uh, plus the open source side of, you know, navigation and some manipulation software um, so that university labs can sort of get a real jump start they don't have to build, you know, a robot by bringing pieces together. They have something that was designed for mobile manipulation from the get-go. Thank you. You're welcome. Hi, can you introduce yourself? Sure. So my name is Simon DiMaio. I work in our R&D group at Intuitive Surgical. Now, can you tell me a bit about what you have set up at this booth? Sure. So this is called the Da Vinci Surgical System. It's a system for minimally invasive surgery. Uh, it's, a, it's a robotic system for assisting surgeons to perform surgeries in a, in a minimally invasive way. Um, and it does that by allowing the surgeons to control instruments inside the patient's body from what we call a surgeon console. And so they can get very dexterous manipulations of surgical instruments while, um, while, while minimizing the invasiveness of the procedure for the patient. So being able to fit these instruments through very small incisions in the patient's abdomen, but still allow the surgeon to have control and dexterity of those instruments and to see the field um, in 3D, in stereo. So we have a stereo endoscope that allows the surgeon to see the inside of the surgical field in stereo, very high-quality HD images, mm -hmm. and then to be able to control surgical instruments like graspers and forceps and uh, uh, cutting instruments and electrocautery instruments in a very natural way, almost as if they were inside the patient. Mm -hmm. Now, can you describe the Da Vinci a little bit to sure. yeah. give our listeners an idea of what we're seeing? Absolutely. So um, there are really two main component, components of the Da Vinci. There's the, the part of the Da Vinci that's at the patient, and, and this is where they are robotic manipulators that manipulate instruments that are inserted inside the patient. 
And that is a cart. It's a mobile cart that carries four robotic arms. Uh, usually one of those arms carries the camera, and the surgeon can control the pointing direction and the view that the camera sees. And then there are three additional arms that are usually used to manipulate instruments, and, and those can be for cutting and grasping and suturing and mm-hmm. electrocordery and things like that. And then the other main piece is where the surgeon sits. They sit in an ergonomic uh, console. You can think of it as kind of like a surgeon's cockpit Mm -hmm. where they see images from inside the patient. They see uh, information from the system, and they can interact and control by moving some really fancy joysticks. They can control the movement of the instruments, and they can uh, interact with tissue from the other side of the room. So usually that console is in the same room, uh, connected to, this, to the rest of the system through a cable, uh, but the surgeon controls the system from that console. Mm-hmm. And so the patient and cart, mm-hmm. it kind of looks like a large hangman. Yep. Yeah, uh, it's, and it's high, mm-hmm. high above, yep. with the arms coming down, and right. it has four arms. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, so each of the arms has a large tube mm-hmm. that is inserted into the patient, and that's where the manipulators are that's and right. the camera. That's right. And that tube is called a trocar or a, or a cannula, mm-hmm. and that's the port of entry into the patient's body. And so in order to create space for the surgeon to, to work in, uh, usually the, the, the abdomen or whichever cavity of, uh, you know, within the anatomy the, the surgeon is working would be inflated using carbon dioxide gas to create kind of a bubble for them to work in. So those tubes that you, that you referred to, or the trocars or the cannulas, have a seal on them mm-hmm. uh, so that the carbon dioxide is trapped inside and maintained. And so the instruments can pass in and out of the body through that cannula, or trocar, through a seal. I see. And so if you want different attachments onto mm-hmm. these, uh, how do you... Do they remove the inserted part... Uh, from the arm and then swap in a new one? That's correct. Yeah, we call them they're instruments. They're surgical instruments and they're, they're articulated instruments. They have wrists on them to mimic what the surgeon would want to do inside of the body. Mm-hmm. And then there are a ver- variety of end effectors or, or jaws that uh, the instruments have. Some of them are for grasping tissue like bowel or liver or kidney. Some of them are for cutting. Some of them are for uh, suturing, so for, for handling needles. And those instruments... Uh, are, are interchangeable on the system so they can be removed and replaced with, with different instruments As depending on them. the task so if the beginning of the procedure is a dissection portion of the procedure where you're trying to expose tissues of interest and then you've got to remove some tissue and then suture things back together in each of those stages you would use a different, potentially a different combination of instruments and mm-hmm. so the system allows to be able to swap instruments during the procedure very quickly uh, is that the purpose of the fourth arm? Well, so the fourth arm could be could be managing retraction, for example. So it could be holding some tissue out of the way. You might be working underneath a liver or you might be working mm-hmm. um, in an area where there's bowel and you might need to hold the bowel out of the way. And so that instrument could be used for that. It could be what's called a suction irrigation instrument. So an instrument that flushes the field with saline and then vacuums it out to keep to manage blood and to keep the field dry and, 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 and visibility good. Mm-hmm. So there are a variety of different things that you could 
use the fourth arm for. It could be used to manipulate an ultrasound probe. So if the surgeon is looking at ultrasound images of the tissue and trying to see beyond visible surfaces in the endoscopic image, they might insert an ultrasound probe and manipulate that with the fourth arm as well. So it's kind of an auxiliary arm that's used for many different things. I see. It can also be controlled from a second console, so you can connect two consoles to the robot and when have is two that, surgeons. When is that useful? Why? So that's useful for training in one instance. So if you have a, a proctor that's training a mentor, uh, a mentor that's sort of training a mentee, mm-hmm. uh, the proctor might be on one console and your trainee might be on the other console and they can swap, kind of virtually swap control of instruments back and forth. Mm. So the mentor might demonstrate a technique and then give control of those instruments to the, to the trainee and then they might replicate uh, those motions. Another instance of where that's useful is if you have two, maybe they're experienced surgeons and they're collaborating on a complex case, and one surgeon might be managing retraction or they might be managing uh, active retraction or or, uh, uh, irrigation or suction or things like that. So Mm -hmm. that that can be the purpose of the second console, so so that uh, you can have all of the arms operating at the same time. How do you manage collisions between the arms? Does that happen? Or it does that happen, and, and you know the arms work in very close proximity, and part of this design was to make the arms as skinny as possible so that they can work closer together. Mm-hmm. They're pretty robust, so they, they, they can collide, and they, they, don't, they shouldn't break. Do they collide during surgery? They can collide during surgery, and usually that happens when the surgeon's trying to get the instruments very close together through a very narrow entry way. Uh, uh, some, of the, some of those forces that, are, that occur during collisions are actually fed back into the console, so they can feel... Uh, some of those collisions on the outside of the robot. So there is some haptics. So there is some haptics. They don't feel the very delicate interactions with oh. tissue, but they can feel external collisions between the arms or perhaps with some rigid object. Mm-hmm. So they get some feedback, and so when they do feel that, they would stop and investigate. And there's usually an assistant or um, uh, some st- uh, nursing staff at the patient's side that could warn them if there's collisions or impending collisions. But it happens quite often, and, and instruments work very closely together. So it's almost like if we were to stand side by side and our elbows were to knock against each other, it's not a big deal. Right? Keep going, and that's, that's the nature of working in a confined space. Mm-hmm. Now, can you tell me a bit about the demo you have set up at the booth? Mm-hmm. So we have a, a full DaVinci system here, and people are able to t- are able to test drive the system. We've got a, a mannequin model that has a, a simple plastic. Uh, environment that people can ex- can interact with. We've got some elastic bands that they can get a sense of the intuitiveness of the motion of the arms. Uh, we also have a simulator, a virtual reality-based simulator for that's used for training. So it's basically a skills simulator that surgeons can use to learn how to tie knots and suture. They learn how to control camera and the various instruments. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a way for surgeons to be able to repeat the same skills drills over and over again uh, to develop muscle memory, develop familiarity with the system uh, in, 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 a, in, a, in a way that doesn't involve having to operate on patients or animals and things like that. So it's a convenient way for people to use uh, virtual reality models to, to hone their skills. Or to, or to warm up before a procedure. So there's some surgeons that use the simulator like, a, like an athlete would do before a, 
a game, um, they might warm up and they might do some practice with the same idea for surgeons, and, and there are some surgeons that are doing the same kind of thing with their simulators. Interesting. Yeah. Is there a certification procedure for doctors that are using the Da Vinci system in operations? Um, there is a training pathway. I'm, I'm less familiar with that side of things, um, but there is some there is some training. I don't believe that Intuitive directly certifies surgeons for uh, uh, for certifi- certifies surgeons for for using the system at their hospitals. That's the responsibility of the hospital. We provide some training. It's a it's a, it's a tool yes. that surgeons use to perform surgery. We don't train them how to perform surgery that's something that they learn in med school and at their in their career um, but we, we teach them how to use the tool and then and then their colleagues at, at their at their hospital decide how to certify and how to accredit them and how to allow them to um, to use the system within the institution but that's an area that's that's I'm less familiar with yes what kind of feedback have you received from surgeons on the da Vinci uh, well a variety of feedback obviously um, Lots of interest in, in in what they can do with it and what they can offer their patients through this kind of system. Uh, it's a way of, of allowing surgeons to uh, offer their patients an, an option for a minimally invasive procedure, where sometimes that's not available. So we get feedback related to you know the kinds of procedures that they can perform and and, and, and the value of those procedures. We also get feedback on the ergonomics of the system. Uh, for them, being able to sit at a console in a, in a fairly comfortable posture uh, versus sometimes working in fairly awkward poses and configurations uh, at the at the operating room table. So we get some good feedback on, on ergonomics. Uh, obviously, there are lots of features that surgeons would like, and so we get feedback on things that they'd like to see. Um, it's... It's a work in progress, and so we're always interested in hearing feedback from them in terms of things that they like, things that work well, things that they would like improvement for. So it's an ongoing discussion and dialogue with the community to, to understand how we, can, how we can continue to provide products that address important needs for them. Thank you. You're welcome. Hi, can you introduce yourself? Uh, François Boucher, uh, VP Business Development for Kinova Robotics. And can you tell me what we have at the booth here? Yeah, so it's the lightest, more compact, efficient uh, sets of service robotic arm. Uh, we have two different models, Jayco and Miko, with different range uh, and size and weight. So first, what do you mean service robotic arm? So basically it's uh, the opposite of uh, industrial. industrial robotics. So we're not extremely fast and extremely precise, but we're uh, good to work around humans in collaboration with or with the Roman uh, human in the loop. So that means that they're slightly compliant to being touched. So if it bashes into a human when it's moving, it won't hurt the human? Yeah, exactly. But the arms are at the base on top of all the features that we added, software, sensor, and all that stuff are inherently safe. So the arms itself is only 5 kilogram, including gripper, controller, and all that stuff. So it won't hurt anyone at that speed and that, and that weight. Very light. Very cool. So how do you make them compliant? Um, what are you doing? Is uh, there a spring in no, it, like Baxter? or is No, it's it... really, we have torque sensors 
in every actuator's. Ah, so it generates a small electrical signal when you get force on the arm and it's in the opposite direction, then you sense that and then... Okay, how come a different approach, or what's the advantage to doing that over having, like, a spring in series with the actuator? Well, the torque is giving us some... Yeah, Yeah. the torque is giving us, yes, a safety feature, but it's also giving us a whole new range of applications uh, since the arm now can be torque control and not only just position control. Mm -hmm. Uh, So with this whole new field of service robotics, uh, that's the kind of, of... control that will be needed. And so you mentioned two of these robotic, or two of the robots have names. What are they, and can you introduce me? Yeah, so it's Jayco and Miko. Yes. So we started a company for uh, assistive robotics, so to mount robots on wheelchair, mm-hmm. so that people can eat, drink, uh, open door all by themselves. Uh, so it turned out to be uh, Jayco, uh, our first flagship product uh, five years ago. How did you get its name? Uh, it's the uncle of the founder of the company, uh, who was himself a, a muscular dystrophic. So basically you're in a power wheelchair and you have a limited motion of your arms. And he was an inventor and developed himself with uh, cable from uh, bicycle brakes and, and motor from uh, windshield washer. Um, uh, and he, he built some sort of mechanical arm. Mm-hmm. And it was our inspiration to start the company. And his nickname was Jacob. So that's why the robot's name after him. I see. And how did Miko get there, get his name? Yeah, that's, that one's an easy one. It's a contraction of Mini and Jacob. So it turns oh, out to be Mini J- Miko. <laughs> <laughs> Very cool. Can you tell me a bit about the grip and the factors on these robotic arms? Yeah. So for the assistive robotics purpose, we had to figure out how could we grip uh, uh, hundreds of different objects of size and weight so we had to find a, a really versatile uh, solution and then we we went with under actuated gripper uh, it's not tell me a bit how it's under actuated so um, there's a bit of a high P behind it but uh, <laughs> basically there's one actuator per uh, finger and you can imagine two tendons links with a, a spring and uh, yeah. I see. Okay. Yeah. So then, uh, the great advantage about the the this gripper is really that they are mechanically intelligent. So we don't have to worry really much about which force we're gonna apply, how we're gonna grasp the object, uh, since the flexible gripper adapts to the shape of the object. So with the exact same force, we can grab an egg like we can grab a bottle of water. You can grab an egg. Yeah. Exactly surprising that's, that's great do you, so to grab an egg what kind do you have to tell it that it's a soft object no that's the key Does, so you have a force sensor or something that tells it when it's grabbed it hard enough or no it's work? pretty it's just a great mix of mechanical design and uh, force limitation uh, based on current and uh, sometimes people are trying to overdo things we keep it simple and it works pretty well that's interesting. Can you talk a bit more about that, or is that IP? Uh, it's more experience than yeah. IP, I would say. Ah. <laughs> That's kind of mind-blowing for me. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, and then, so some of them don't have any hands, robotic arms, or graspers. Yeah. What What are you demonstrating there? Uh, a lot of our arms are used in the 
maintenance, uh, logistics, uh, uh, inspection. So they're replacing the the end either by, by a tool holder or a sensor holder or camera. So the arm's not only used for manipulation, but also uh, can be combined with a mobile platform uh, to perform inspection and probing. I see. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, could you introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, my name is Andrew Lewis. I'm a roboticist with Applied Dexterity, uh, and I'm here representing the Raven 2 and the uh, surgical cockpit. Mm -hmm. Tell me about the Raven 2. Uh, the Raven 2 is an open-source surgical robotics research platform. Um, it was developed here at the University of Washington uh, and then spun out into the, our, our startup company, Applied Dexterity, uh, and we have um, helped distribute it around the world. Uh, now there are about... Uh, 18 or 19 labs around the world using Raven or something or something similar. Now, what stands out to me is open source surgical. Can you explain that a bit? Sure. Um, so the all the software is open source. It's up on GitHub if you want to fork it and play around with it. Uh, throw it on your own version of Raven if uh, you're that brave. Um, the tool interface is also open source. So we had... Uh, a team, one of the original Raven teams at the University of Nebraska, uh, developed a uh, DaVinci adapter. So now we can use clinical DaVinci tools on our robot uh, and then have access to their 150 plus tools without having to make them all ourselves. So what's the benefit of having it open source? And you said if you dare for the uh, implementing it. Uh, so does that mean that you're largely doing low-level things open uh, source or what? So the, the whole thing is, uh, is open source. But uh, is most of the value you get from open sourcing this technology low-level parts of the software? Right. Um, so we're, we've done all the low-level parts uh, and we've opened it all up so that researchers can look at anything they want. If they want to implement their own impedance control or some other uh, control techniques, uh, they're welcome to dive deep into the, the PID loops and what have you. Or they can just do some automation software with some Python scripts and ROS. Mm -hmm. um, and so since all the source code is available to you, if something's not working quite right, you can just change it yourself. Or you shoot me an email and I'll tell you how to change it or change it for you. Um, and then uh, with the common platform, all of the schools or labs that have this robot can um, can really lean on each other for advice on how to approach a problem or if they're having technical difficulties can uh, check the forums and see that oh yeah Harvard dealt with this a few years ago and they just unplugged this other thing. So is it largely research communities that are benefiting from this being open source? Yep so far um, we've uh, distributed just to research labs um, we're hoping to, uh, to um, get in touch with hospitals about using this for research or training um, but that would probably be a more tightened down, ready to roll uh, don't need to play with the code kind of version. And when we spoke about this a little bit ago, you mentioned that it's not FDA approved. Right. Uh, can you talk a bit about that for surgery? Is it just a robot that is it used in surgery, first of all? Uh, the original version, the Raven 1, was used for a porcine cholecystectomy of about a decade ago, I guess. I don't know what that is. Uh, it's a gallbladder removal in a pig, um, and it um, it was successful. And uh, I think that's been the only real live surgery that's been done with the robot. Uh, however, I've started doing some mouse dissections with it to look at um, time delay and teleoperation, um, and um, so it's uh, since it's not AFT approved, that means that when uh, a lab is looking to do some research with a platform that's 
already ready to go, they're not paying for that FDA approval. Mm. Um, so the, the Da Vinci or other clinical systems are going to run you millions of dollars because they've had to put a lot of time and a lot of effort into getting those approved. It's a process, yes. Yeah. Um, so. so that's the advantage of it. The cost is kept down because it's no longer FDA. It's not FDA approved. Right. I see. And so what are you thinking? What's kind of the goal uh, where the company is heading? Uh, so our, uh, our slogan is uh, pushing the boundaries of surgical robotics. Uh, so the idea is to be able to, to um, make this platform available to, to research labs that are really pushing the boundaries uh, and support them wherever we can. Um, and then, um, you know, we make a lot of great connections in all these great labs uh, and maybe try to license back some of those uh, technologies that are coming out of the research community um, and certainly learn a lot just by being around everyone. Um, so as we keep developing either surgical or other teleoperated or autonomous systems, then we've got um, it. a huge advantage to us is just being familiar with all these research topics. Thank you. Sure. And that's it for today. As always, check out robohub.org for more information on this episode and all the latest on the hottest topics and debates in robotics. We'll be back in two weeks' time. Until then, goodbye. ICRA with Robots, the podcast for news and views on robotics.